Well, good morning to you, church, and Merry Christmas. You ready to get into God's Word? Turn with me to John chapter 4. John chapter 4 is where we'll be today. Um, as our worship arts ministries, they're making their way out, off of the stage. Would you do me a, a favor and let's affirm them. Last Sunday night in the concert, uh, the Christmas program was such an incredible uh, opportunity for us to, to proclaim Christ or be reflective of the meaning of this season. And they worked for months to make it happen. Some of which you saw some of what, uh, today, some of the uh, pieces that they performed. Would you just take a moment and affirm them, please? Thank them. <clears throat> That program was a wonderful complement to our Advent uh, observance, our Advent celebration. As you know, uh, this year's Advent theme uh, is, O Come All You Faithful. I have in my hands a copy of the devotion book. Have you been journeying along with us? Our pastors pr uh, produced uh, this devotion book. Each day a, a pastor took a, a passage or a, a theme and, and has been uh, fleshing out what I've been preaching on, on Sundays. Uh, if, you, if you have uh, not a, a, a picked up a copy of your own, we do have some of these left over. Uh, we produced a few extra. Uh, you guys have been exceptionally compliant this year. We've, we've normally said, hey, one devotion book per family, and uh, not, a, not, not every year have you followed those rules and we've ran out. Uh, but you've done a good job this year, so if you would like to grab one or more uh, before you depart today, these are wonderful things you can pass out. I know they are dated, but they are the, the information is still relevant. Uh, you can pass that on to other people or to, to into your family. Be sure and pick one of those up on your way out. Uh, by, by now you know that this theme, uh, O Come All You Unfaithful, uh, is inspired by a song that we've been singing each and every Sunday. We'll sing it one more time uh, th today before we depart. Uh, it's the name of this, of this devotion, O Come All You Unfaithful. And it was written by someone who in the season of her life, which is, it was a very difficult time, uh, she really wanted to just, she didn't feel worthy to celebrate Christmas. She wanted to skip Christmas. Uh, there was a lot going on in her life, a lot of stress, a lot of personal affliction, and she just, she just didn't have it within her to sing. And uh, the Spirit got a hold of her uh, not long after that because uh, she was a, a worship leader and a songwriter. And, and the Lord said, no, 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 uh, Christmas is even for you. She realized that that's really who Christmas is for. It's not just for those who we would, we would quote, say, are faithful, but it's for the unfaithful. It's for the unworthy, for those who, who, who can't fix their situation, for those who are lost and cannot save themselves. In a word, Christmas and the message of Christmas is for all of us. And uh, so we, we, that's what we're trying to, to, to focus on this year. The, the fourth verse, by the way, of this, of this song, you'll hear it at the end of the service. It goes like this. O come guilty and hiding ones, there is no need to run. See what your God has done. This message today is for those who are feeling a little bit of, of shame. Uh, the, the guilty and hiding ones. And I hope by the time you leave here that that shame uh, would, would be taken from you, that you would know that the Lord Jesus has died for your sins and uh, that based on His righteousness, um, that uh, you can stand in His righteousness and not in your own. And I would say if we're, if we're going to, to move past this stage of being guilty and hiding, maybe the best way to do it is just to rip off the band-aid from the very beginning. Uh, what, what I have in, in my possession at this moment I, I printed out some sins that you and I might be guilty of, and uh, I, I want you just to, to think of which of, of these may, may be yours. 
Um, for instance, there's the, the sin of pride, all right? The sin of pride is, is one. Um, and then I have the, the sin of greed, all right? Avarice. And then there is the sin of lust, the sin of lust. And then the sin of envy. Is any of this hitting home with anyone just yet? How about the sin of gluttony? All right, some of you will engage in that before the day's over. How about the sin of wrath? The sin of wrath. Or then the, the sin of sloth or, or laziness. Now what I'd like to do is lay these out on the stage and then we're going to have to do this very quickly. I think the, if you could come and, and form, form lines, but if whatever these are yours, <laughs> what, nobody's willing to come up on stage and, and hold these up? What, what if we cut the live feed? Would that make you feel a little bit better and you wouldn't do that? Right now there are people who are watching us online saying, I chose the right day to not be in the building, right? What if I were serious? What if I actually laid these things out on the stage and asked you to come and to pick up the one sin among all of these? And you may, you may say, well, there's more than one that I, could, that, that I could really hold up. But if I were to ask you just to choose one and to hold it up for this church to see, for the world to see, to see that one sin that you struggle with more than anything else. And if I were serious about that and people began to get up and to come forward, would you come forward? Or would you hesitate? You see, if, if you hesitate, if you pause for just a moment, why is there hesitation? Why is there hesitation on your part? What, what is keeping you from revealing to the world that sin struggle? Because you know the Lord already knows it, right? But what's holding you back? If you're hesitating, maybe it's because you're maybe still struggling with that sin and you're ashamed over it and you don't want no one else to know about it. You know, if you're guilty, you want to hide it. You want to keep that as close to the vest as possible and, and, and give the impression that you're not struggling with anything, that there's no issue in your life like someone else may have. You know, and even if we have been forgiven of that sin and that sin is in our past, why is it that we tend to, to hide that fact and we don't want people to know about it? Today we're going to encounter one that we could call an egregious sinner. Someone who had a sin, and it wasn't just known to her, it was known to a lot of people in the community. Everyone who knew her was aware of it, but even so, as we're going to find in the story, we find her hiding in shame, trying to stay away from people, even in broad daylight. And the person I'm talking about is the woman at the well. Are you familiar with her story? Well, we're going to find part of her story as we read today. In fact, let me just go ahead and jump into the Scripture if we can. Why don't you stand with me as we, we make it our tradition, as we begin to read God's Word as a reminder that this is no ordinary book, but it is the written, revealed Word of God for you and for me. And I believe the story that is so familiar to many of us has encouraging and hopeful words for you today, especially if you were one who you would describe yourself as guilty, you're ashamed, and so you're hiding. If you'll begin with me in verse 7, I'm going to read down to verse 15. A woman from Samaria came to draw water. Jesus said to her, give me a drink. 
for his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. Samaritan woman said to him, how is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. And Jesus answered her, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, sir, you have nothing to draw water with and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock. And Jesus said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. And the woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have, come, have to come here to draw water. And if you jump down to verse 28. And so the woman left her water jar and went away into town and said to the people, Come see a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? Would you pray with me? Lord, none of us would have to come up to this platform and hold up a sign declaring our sins to you. You already know. You know our weaknesses. You know our, our hearts. You know our sinful tendencies. You know our struggles. In fact, Lord, you could tell us every sin that we have ever committed. Even the ones we, have, we are not aware of, you know. And you could call us on it. But Lord, I pray that we would see today that you did not come into this world to condemn the world, but that you came to offer salvation to us. That though we, we may find ourselves guilty and hiding, you came to us to save us, to redeem us, to change us. And that that's what Christmas is all about. So remind us that, Lord, but particularly to the one who in this season of life, or maybe for year after year after year, for years, they've been dealing with shame and guilt. Help them to know that forgiveness can be found today. We ask this, we pray it in the name of Christ Jesus. Amen and amen. God bless you. You may be seated. <clears throat> for those of you who've been with us in the last handful of months, you know we were, we've been in this passage of Scripture, the one we're going to be journeying in, the story uh, not too long ago, in the middle of our habit series, the series on spiritual disciplines, we were talking about worship, and it was in the, the context of the story that Jesus and this woman were debating about the proper place of worship. Remember that? Well, we're going back to the story for another reason, but before I get there, let me just remind you of the broader context, because Jesus had been in Jerusalem, and he's making his way back up into Galilee to the north, and he was passing through Samaria. And it's in the middle of the day that he paused to stop at Jacob's well to rest while his disciples go uh, to gather some supplies, to gather some food. And while he is waiting there, resting at the, at the side of the well, this woman approaches him to draw water. And she, he, Jesus asks her for a drink, and she ends up getting the drink. She ends up with living water, and her life is radically changed. Now, you know, I know that this story has no direct tie uh, to the traditional Christmas story. This is not the typical passage you would go to in the celebration of Advent, but it does remind us, the story, of why Jesus came to earth. 
So its message is very important, especially to those of us who really want to appreciate the season in which we are in and to appreciate it even more. And it's especially encouraging uh, if you were one of those that was reluctant to come up and hold up a sign, right? This message, I believe, is going to be an encouragement to you. In fact, uh, I believe there, there are three encouragements to this story, and in this story that will be especially important to you if you would describe yourself as guilty and hiding. And here is the first encouragement. If you are guilty and hiding, know this, that Jesus came to earth looking for you. This is the reason why Christmas is so important. He, he came to those who were guilty and hiding, looking for us. The very one you've sinned against, the very one that you have offended, the very one that you have disobeyed, the very one that you are guilty of offending, the one you're hiding from, he's not avoiding you. He's seeking you out. See, the story tells me that Jesus pursues the guilty and hiding, which is exactly what he is doing in this story. He went out of his way to cross paths with someone who was trying to not cross paths with anyone else. But look at verse 3. We're jumping ahead of where we read just a moment ago. Jesus left Judea and departed again for Galilee, and he had to pass through Samaria. So he came to a town of Samaria called Sychar. Jacob's well was there. So Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well. The fact that Jesus is traveling through Samaria is a very important part of the story. It's a very important fact. Because you know, if you know much about the, 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 the Jewish history, especially in these days, is that the Jews historically hated people in Samaria. This region, it's sort of sandwiched between where Jerusalem is and, and uh, the Sea of Galilee to the north. The Jews typically, historically, hated the Sumerians because they were filled with Jewish half-breeds. They, they had part Jewish lineage, but they were forced to intermarry uh, at, at some point in the past. And they, they, they had some different histories, different understandings about the faith. And so the Jews just wanted nothing to do with them, these half-breeds. Good Jews would have done all that they could to avoid Samaria and stay away from it. Now, to know this, though, to get to Galilee from Jerusalem, well, here's what they would do. They would start heading northwest to Jericho, uh, or northeast to Jericho, cross the Jordan River on the opposite side of Samaria, travel all the way up around Samaria uh, to get to Galilee instead of taking the shortest route right up through Samaria. That's what the typical Jew would do, but that's not what Jesus did in this story. Instead of going around Samaria, he goes right through it. In fact, we are told in this passage that he had to pass through Samaria. By the way, there was no geographical or political reason why we'd have to go through Samaria. There were some cultural things that, that others would have said, don't do that. But what we are told here is that Jesus is compelled to go, compelled to pass through Samaria, as if he were drawn there. And remember, this is a historic place. We're told specifically that Jacob's well was there. Now, going to this place is important because of what it does for Jesus. It allows him to be positioned to encounter someone who in that moment, when, when this person crosses paths with him at the right moment, at the right time, someone who is guilty of sin and hiding. Look at verse 6 again. At the end of the verse, we are told simply this, that it was about the sixth time hour. That is an important point, an important fact I'll point out in just a moment. It is the sixth hour. It's noontime. 
Verse 7, a, a woman from Samaria came to draw water. So this sixth hour, that is the sixth hour after the sun has come up, it's noontime. And this woman arrives at this moment that she would come to the well at noontime is honestly odd. We don't think much about it because we don't know much about the, the, the geography and the culture in that day. But women who drew water in the Middle East in those days followed a couple of rules. One, this is most important, you only went out in the early morning to draw water or late afternoon because the, the water jar or the water bag that you carried was very heavy and it's very hot. You're going to exert a lot of energy. You don't want to go out in the heat of the day uh, because at noontime, it is the blazing hottest moment of the entire day. That was the first rule. You don't go out unless it's early morning or late in the afternoon or early evenings. Two, you always went with someone else. And the reason was that it was because drawing water was a social affair for women. They were often at home caring for the family, but there was a couple of times in the day, a, a social moment for them when you would go and see all of your friends. And it was when you went to draw water for your family. And there you would see your friends. It was a time to be seen, a time uh, to, to get the latest news. So why is it then that she is at the well at this odd moment for a woman in the Middle East in that day and time? Why is she there at the middle of the day when she expected no one else to be there? Well, as we're going to find out later, she's a known sinner. She's got a lot of sin baggage. There's a lot going on in her life. And so she's visiting the well at this time so that she would be certain to be alone, or so she thought, because no one went to the well at, at noontime. And so we find this woman who is guilty of sin, and she's hiding from people. She wasn't, doesn't want a soul to be around her. A place that is normally known for social activity at certain times of the day, she's going so, at a time so she doesn't have to be social. This is a reminder that when we, when we sin, especially when it becomes known to other people, we, we, we tend to feel a sense of shame. Now, I know we've entered into a weird season in the life of our culture here in, in, the, in the, uh, the, the democratic West where a lot of people are engaging in all kinds of sin and there's no shame about it at all. And that's for a, another message and a, another time. But for the, the typical seemingly trying to be upstanding moral person, if you sin and it becomes known to other people, we tend to feel a sense of shame. And who wants to be around other people who know what you've done? You, you don't want it to, yourself to be a constant reminder of your failures, so it's just easier to step away. That's why we often see people who are part of churches when they engage in some kind of egregious sin, that instead of trying to get with the people of God and work it out, many times they just disappear because they, they have a sense of shame and they're guilty and they just want to hide from it. But can I tell you that the most important thing that you can do other than repent and get right with the Lord is to lean into Christian community when you're a sinful person? Because the truth is, there's not a one of us, when I held up these signs, who could honestly say, I'd have no reason to come up and hold it up because I'm not guilty of any of those. You see, we're all sinners. And we all fall, fall short of God's expectations. We all fall short of His glory. And so this church it should not be a place of the super spiritual it should not be a place of judgment. It should be a place of understanding, of acceptance. Now, that, does that mean that we don't call a sin a sin? Of course not. Does that mean that we're supposed to tolerate sin and, and, and permit it? Of course not. Of course we call a sin a sin, but we do so to call people to repentance, 
so that they will turn to Jesus and away from their sinfulness. And that's why we, we should want our church to be and should desire to be a place for the guilty and hiding people of the world to come. You're guilty? Okay, come, come be alongside of the rest of us guilty people. You want to hide? Come hide in Jesus. That's the best place to hide. Because here ought to be the place where people can find Christ because that is their greatest hope to get past their guilt and get past their shame. You see, Jesus came to this earth looking for guilty and hiding people. And that included the woman at the well. In fact, look at their interaction there in verse 7. Jesus says to her when, they, when she approaches, Jesus said to her, give me a drink. And then we're given this parenthetical thought for his disciples had gone away to buy, into the city to buy food. Verse 9, the Samaritan woman said to him, how is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? And then another parenthetical thought verse, at the end of verse 9, for Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. In other words, here's what their interactions like. She is saying, look, Jews and, and Samaritans, we don't hang out with one another. You know that. That's the rule. You don't like us. We don't like you. And we certainly don't drink together, remember? We don't do this. Men and women aren't supposed to talk to, in public with one another either, which was a cultural uh, understanding in that day. So why in the world are you talking to me? Well, she hasn't figured it out yet, but she is. Jesus is there encountering her, talking to her, not because she's a Samaritan, not because she is a woman, but because she is a sinner. She is a guilty sinner who's come out in the heat of the day, hiding from others because of the shame of her sin. She is hiding from others, and she is hiding from God. Everyone else around her, by the way, that lived in that, in that community was probably pretty cool with her, pretty content with her, not coming out at the, at the normal times of day uh, with, with her avoiding them, but not God, not Jesus. That she was guilty and hiding was the very reason why he came to her. But he came to her for a particular reason, and that is to save her. And that's the very next truth I want to share with you, that yes, Jesus comes looking for the guilty and hiding but also, if you're guilty and hiding, you need to know that Jesus came to save you. He came looking for you to save you. You see this in their continued conversation. Jesus begins to steer the conversation toward the gospel. She had asked for, he had asked for a drink. She responds by saying, well, why is it you talking to a Samaritan? And this is what Jesus says in verse 10. Jesus answered, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. In other words, Jesus was saying, look, I know you really don't want to be out here in the heat. I know that's, you didn't come out here because this is the best time of day. You'd rather be hiding than being out here from the day. But you have another need. You have this need for thirst, and so you felt you had to come out at some point, so you chose the hottest time of the day to come here to get water because you needed water. But I've got water that you will not find in this well. It's living water. Now, she doesn't quite get what, what he's getting at, so she says this in verse 11. The woman said to him, sir, you have nothing to draw water with and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you, are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us the well and drank from it himself as did his sons and his livestock. To which Jesus responds with these incredible words. Everyone who drinks of this water, pointing to the well, will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. You see, that woman in that moment thought that the most important need of, of her life in that moment 
was water, water to satisfy her thirst. But her need was far greater than physical. What she really needed was spiritual satiation. She needed forgiveness. She needed salvation. And that's what Jesus was offering her with these words, which is why he said, the water that I will give to you wells up to eternal life. And here Jesus is revealing why he has come to her. Why he has made his appearance at this particular moment. He is God. He is sovereign. He is omniscient. He knows all things. He knew that she was going to be at that well before she even knew she was going to get up that day to go. And Jesus came to her. It's why he came to her in that moment, but it's also why he came to earth. He came to offer us salvation. He came to offer us living water. He came to offer us eternal life. And this, my friends, is what Christmas is all about. It's not about the tradition. It's not about the decorations. It's not about getting that Christmas spirit. And, and all of those things, if you have them, it's well and good as long as those things do not distract us from the real meaning of what this season is about. That Jesus came to save us. He came to the guilty and the hiding. He came to save them. And He came to save you. Remember what the angel told Joseph when he discovers that Mary was with child, and they had not yet uh, become fully married, and, and it's going to be a public scandal when the world finds out, and, and, and Joseph is considering how he's going to put her away uh, quietly, and, and the angel appears to him and says this. We read of this in Matthew 121. He says about, the angel says to Joseph about Mary, she will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. For he will save his people from their sins. You know the name Jesus? You know what it means? It has a meaning. And the Jewish names are impregnated with meaning. No pun intended. Jesus' name means Yahweh saves. Or the Lord is salvation. Do you understand that Jesus' very name tells us why he was born? His very name sets for us his purpose. Jesus came to save us from our sins. And that leads us to our third and final encouragement, especially for those of you who are guilty. If you are guilty and hiding, know this, that Jesus came to change you. He came to change you. And listen, change begins by recognizing the need for change. It, it, it begins with confrontation. And that's going to happen in the story, which is what Jesus does with the woman. Notice how he confronts her. Jump down to verse 15. The woman said to him, sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. And Jesus said to her, go call your husband and come here. Those of you who know the story knows what's coming next. The woman answered him and said, I, I have no husband. And Jesus said, you're right in saying I have no husband. For you have had five husbands and the one that you now have is not your husband. What you have said is true. And you know what the woman's response was? The woman said to him, sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. You know, sometimes we think of prophets as those who prophesy about some future coming, right? You, do you know that the Old Testament prophet, that their primary function was actually to call out sin? They were the voice of God. They were the mouth, mouthpiece of God to the Jewish people. When a prophet of the Lord would show up and engage the Jewish people, the people of Israel in days past, many times, most often, it wasn't to encourage them, but it was to condemn them for their sin. And so this 
So Jesus is calling her out for her sin. And I don't know if you, you noticed, I mean, he's actually calling her out, not just for one failed marriage, but for five failed marriages, and also calling her out for the sin of being with, living with a sixth guy. This woman is caught up in sin. Jesus doesn't condemn her for it, but he does call her out on it, which is why she responds by saying, you must be a prophet. You see the sin in my life. And you were calling me out on it. It's one of the most loving things that Jesus could have done for her in that moment. I know our tendency is to, you know, put our arm around somebody who is sinful and, and just say, hey, it's not that bad and it's going to be okay. And I'm not saying that there's not a place for that. But friend, I'm telling you, based on Jesus' example, that one of the most loving things that we could do for a person is to remind her that there is a God and we are not and that we are failing to live up to God's standards. People who are guilty and hiding need to hear the truth. They don't need to be given a pass. They don't need to be made feel good about their guilt. Now, we, we should be compassionate, but their disobedience does not need to be excused. It doesn't need to be explained away. They need to hear the truth, which is what Jesus is doing for them and for her. And He does it for us. People who are apart from Christ need to know that they are sinners, that they have offended a holy God, that the wrath of that holy God burns against them, and that they are hopelessly lost because of their sin, and that they cannot save themselves. And so when Jesus called out this woman for all of her sin, he wasn't being unkind to her, he was actually being kind. He was being loving. Because you see, he wasn't just offering her salvation. Uh, and saying, hey, I want you to be saved, he's also revealing to her what she needs to be saved from. She needed to be saved from, from her sin. She needed to be saved from the consequences of her sin. In other words, she needed to repent and experience repentance. She needed change. And Jesus would be the one who would change her. And she's slowly beginning to grasp this. I'm going to skip over verses 20 and 22, 23. And we, we looked at that in the discussion about the, the place of worship and, and when they were discussing where, where is the proper place to worship here on this mountain or on the mountain in Jerusalem. But I do want to point out verse 24, Jesus' statement to her in that context. He said, God is spirit and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. Again, this is a passage we looked at a few weeks ago, but look at her response to that statement. When he said God is spirit and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth, her response was this, verse 25, I know that Messiah is coming, he who is called Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. And then Jesus makes the most explosive statement he makes in this entire passage. When she says, I know the Messiah is coming, Jesus says, I who speak to you am he. This is huge. Here in this moment, Jesus is saying, I am the Messiah. I am the Christ. I am the anointed one. I am the one that you've been waiting for and all of your family and all of Israel has been waiting for. I am He. You see, the beginning of experiencing spiritual change is recognizing Jesus for who He is. That He is the Messiah, the Christ, the anointed one. That He is God. Now, why is this important? It's because Jesus, who is God, He is the standard by which we measure all of our lives. We live in a time where 
people have their truth. You have your truth, I have my truth, and what my truth is may be different from your truth. And, and so we, we have this fluctuating standard in our culture of what is truth. But our understanding from a biblical standpoint, from a spiritual standpoint, is that there is but one standard of truth, and that is God Himself. God Himself and His Word that flows out of His nature and out of His character. And so in order for us to move past our point of being guilty and ashamed, if we're going to experience true life change, spiritual change, we have to evaluate our lives in light of His. Because when we evaluate our lives in light of who Jesus is, we will always fall short. We will always fall short. And we'll realize then that change must happen if we're going to be like Jesus. But friend, we cannot make this change happen ourselves. Only Jesus can do it, but we must believe. So did the woman believe in this story? Did Jesus bring about change in her life? Let's see if we can find some truth, some evidence, because if there's genuine change, there'll be visible fruit. So jump down to verse 28. At this moment, the disciples who've been off getting food and provisions, they've come back, they've returned, so there's some conversation going on. And it's in the, you know, they're astonished, by the way, uh, as astonished, if not more, than the woman was that Jesus is talking to this woman. Because you just didn't do that in, in polite culture in that day. So they're astonished that he's talking with a woman. And it's while they were talking about this that she sort of quietly slips away. Look at verse 28. So the woman left her water jar and went away into town and said to the people, Come see a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? And the townspeople went out of the town and were coming to him. Do you realize what a demonstrable difference this is from when we first encountered her at the beginning of the story? When we first meet her, we first encounter this woman, we, we meet her for the first time at the well. She's visiting the well at a time that she specifically has chosen where she will be least likely to meet any of the townspeople, right? But now, because of her encounter with Jesus, because Jesus came looking for her, and because Jesus was offering salvation to her, offering her living water and calling her to change, she has now left her water jar and she is boldly walking to the very town filled up with the very people that she was trying to avoid and she is declaring to all of them, hey, come see the man who told me all that I've ever did. That's right, everybody. I'm a sinner. Come check it out. I had five husbands, I've been shacking up with a potential sixth, and I've been avoiding all of you people because I've been ashamed of myself, but I don't care what you think anymore because I just met the Messiah, the one who told me and called me out on everything that I ever did. I don't know about you, amen. I think we have a little bit of evidence of spiritual change here, don't you think? She doesn't care what anyone thinks anymore because... She now realizes that the only opinion that ever matters is the opinion of Jesus. And she just encountered him. And rather than turn her away, she, he offered her eternal life. And she believed him when he said, I am the Christ, the Messiah. By the way, it wasn't just her. Others believed too, based on her testimony. It's outside of our main text, but look at verse 39. We're told that many Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He, he told me all that I ever did. So we're, we're not told in the story that she walked away from her sinful ways, but we, we can assume that she did. 
Because if she truly believed him to be the Messiah and embraced him as the Messiah, all evidence points to the fact that she did, by the way, she would have been changed spiritually. And it would have been, wouldn't have been based on what she brought. wouldn't have been based upon her, her force of will, but it would have been what Jesus provided her through the Spirit. And with her belief, she would have turned from, from her sin. She would have begun a life of repentance and she would have experienced true spiritual change. Born again, as we'll look, talk about next week from John chapter 3. So what does this story tell us? Well, listen, listen to me. Oh, oh guilty one. If that was you, if you, you would have said, hey, I, I can see where this is going, Pastor, from the very beginning, and I'm the one, I, I'm the guilty one. If you are that guilty one, listen to me, oh, guilty one. Jesus came to change you. That, that's what this story is about. He, he came to make forgiveness possible. You can be forgiven of your sin, and you can also be changed. You can be turned from your sin. In other words, you don't have to remain guilty. You don't have to keep hiding you don't have to be weighed down by your guilt. You don't have to keep living in shame. You, oh friend, you just need to know that this is why Jesus came. And friend, it's also why Christmas needed to happen. It's what Christmas is all about. And so if I can conclude, I, I want to go to another place in Scripture. Because if you're really weighed down by guilt, if you can't get past some sinful decision of your past and it, it continues to haunt you, and maybe you're like some of these others we talked about this season, the last thing you want to do right now in this season is to celebrate Christmas. You, you, of all the people that you could say feels unworthy, it's you. Unfaithful, that's you. And if you really want, all you really want to do is to keep running and hiding, you're, you're failing to see the reason why we have Christmas and the reason why we need Christmas. But friend, it's not just you, oh guilty one, that needed Christmas. We all need it. There's not a soul in this room, not a person listening online who doesn't need this message as much as you. We all need it because we're all guilty. Every last one of us. We all honestly feel the need to hide. You know, typically when I, I explain the gospel, you'll often hear me refer to the broader story of Scripture. And many times, I often begin by talking about God's original intention for mankind. So we often find ourselves in the Garden of Eden when I explain the gospel. If you're here week in and week out, you, you hear it oftentimes. And I talk about how God created us with the purpose, placed the first human beings in the garden and gave them a perfect place in which to, to encounter Him, to know Him, to worship Him, and gave them a simple rule that if they would obey it, they would continue to live in a life of worship, a purpose in the presence of God. And we know the broader story in that Adam and Eve, they disobeyed God, and as a result of that, they ultimately were cast out of God's presence. But what I rarely share with you in, in the particulars is what happens in that story before they are cast out of the garden, and I, I, that's where I want to go. If you still have your Bible open, would you turn with me to Genesis chapter 3? I want you to go to verse 7, and I want you to see the immediate actions of Adam and Eve after they sinned. So Genesis chapter 3, and let's look at verse 7, just, just three or four verses. Are you there? Here's what the scriptures say, Genesis 3, 7. So again, they have disobeyed God, they were tempted, disobeyed God, ate of the, of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil against God's plan for them and desire for them. They disobeyed Him, and this is what we were told after it happened. Then the eyes of both were opened. And they knew they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths, and they heard the sound of the Lord walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife did what? 
they hid themselves. They hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord called to the man and said, Where are you? Do you see God coming? Looking for them, just like Jesus came looking for the woman? And, they, and the man said, I heard the sound of you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. So I hope you see what's happening here. They disobeyed God. They, they sin. Now they're overwhelmed with their guilt and so in shame they try hiding from God. And just as in that small story we've read in John chapter 3 where Jesus came looking for the woman who was guilty and hiding because of her sin. Jesus came looking for her in order that he might come to her to save her and to change her. The response of God to what happens here in Genesis chapter 3 verse 7 is that God comes to, looking for us and he comes to save us and he comes to change us, not immediately in, in the book of Genesis, but in Bethlehem on a hillside in a stable, laid in a manger. Many generations later, God comes looking for us. God comes to save us. God comes to redeem us, to change us by taking on human flesh, being fully God and fully man, born as a babe who would be raised to die for us. He would grow up, lay down his life, never committing one sin. He will lay down his life upon the cross so that we might be forgiven of our sin. That if we would believe upon Him and trust Him for the forgiveness of our, of our sins, that we would be given the offer of living water, we would receive eternal life. This, my friends, is why Christmas is so important. Christmas itself is a reminder that God came looking for sinners who were guilty and hiding to save them and to change them. So here's my question for you. Have you experienced the forgiveness that God came to offer for you, that Jesus came to die for you? Have you? Do you know that Jesus came to die for you, for your sin, for your guilt, to make the way of a relationship with Him possible? If not, today can be the day that Jesus can save you. He can change you, just like He changed that woman at the well. You can be forgiven. But in order for that to happen, in order for you to be saved, in order for you to experience change, you must believe. you got to believe that Jesus is God, that He can save you, that He did come to save you by dying on the cross for your sins, was buried, that He came back to life, and trust Him then for salvation. Because unless you believe, you will not be saved. Would you pray with me? Lord, I thank You that though... I was once guilty of sin. That that guilt has been removed, not because I became a good person, Lord, but because you died for me. And that you took my sin, past, present, and future, and you took that sin upon your person when you went to the cross, and you died for my sin. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you. Thank you that through the propitiation or through the, the sacrifice of, of your body, through the spilling of your blood, that I experience the propitiation of my sin. I have been forgiven. I'm no longer guilty. In my own, I am an unfaithful, unrighteous, guilty and hiding person. But Lord, your righteousness has been imputed into me. 
And so, Lord, when you look upon me, you do not see my goodness or my lack of goodness. You do not see my sin or, or, or my guilt, but you see what you have done. And I thank you for that. And now, Lord, I, I pray that others would be able to experience the same. Lord, you've forgiven us based upon what you did upon the cross. But Lord, I know today someone needs to believe. Someone needs to trust. Someone needs to know that they can be forgiven and that they can turn from their sin and turn to you. Someone needs to celebrate Christmas with a renewed understanding. And today, Lord, I believe you're going to do it. Save some soul that needs it, I pray. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.